You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. If it happened to me, then it can happen to you. It's the approach of after-school specials and public service announcements. Forever. It doesn't get old because it works. Humans learn best through stories, through concrete examples rather than vague warnings. And when the person telling you the story is the absolute last person on the planet you would believe it could happen to, well, it drives the point home. See, most of us, me included, we don't like to think of ourselves as the type of people who would fall prey to phishing scams. Give out my login information? Give out digits of my credit card number over the phone? Come on. You think I'm stupid? And then we get scammed. And when it happens, we don't talk about it because we're ashamed. And yeah, we feel stupid. This brings us back to the need for public service announcements. They can help reduce that stigma. They can help explain the inner workings of the scams that everyone, yes, everyone, can fall for. And they can help us all be better prepared for an online world that can, increasingly, seem like one giant fraud attempt. Our guest today, he is one of the world's leading experts on technology, on the internet, on information security, and all of that. And a while ago, he got totally and thoroughly robbed by a scammer. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Cory Doctorow is a technology journalist and activist with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and he's an author. His new book, The Bezel, arrives February 20th. Hi, Cory. Hey, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. I had to to have us call you when I read your account of what happened to you, of all people. Yeah, people love to read about supposedly technology-savvy people getting tricked. By technology, I, I I think that that's more uh, a phenomenon of the people who've been tricked being somewhat embarrassed about talking about it, as opposed to the rarity with which it happens. Um, you know, being tricked is partly a matter of being naive, mm-hmm. but it's mostly a matter of just everything lining up so that your own natural defenses get bypassed because a bunch of coincidences occur which is why you get just so much undirected spam. It's not that they think that you're going to suddenly forget that you don't do business with a French phone company that owes you a refund. Right. It's that they're hoping that that lands in the inbox of someone who literally just got off the phone with a French phone company that offered them a refund, and that person is going to click it. Oh, we've covered this topic before, though not like we're going to talk about today. And one of the things that's often come up is the shame associated with falling for this kind of stuff. Because, you know, there's a lot of jokes made about like, oh, yeah, you know, there's a Nigerian prince that wants to give you $100 million. Um, and so to even broach with your friends that like, oh, I actually, I just lost a few thousand bucks because of this um, can feel awful. And it's like, it's one of the things that we often don't talk about in plate company because of it. Yeah, I think that, you know, we have this kind of ageist and often sexist uh, cliche 
about scam victims that says that it's little old ladies. It's little old ladies who are naive and fumbling, and they get a phone call from someone who promises them a reverse mortgage or an insurance policy or, you know, a miracle device that will let them call their grandkids for free, and the next thing they know, they've been taken for everything up to and including their house. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that scams are like the bacteria on your skin. Most of them are never going to get through, but every now and again, you will get that mutant staff bacterium that's right next to the place where you happen to get a paper cut, and the next thing you know, you know you've got flesh-eating bacteria, and they're <laughs> amputating your arm. I realized that a couple minutes ago, I used the Nigerian prince uh, scam as an example of this. That's like way outdated now, right? And now that we've talked about who we assume falls for these scams, I'd like to ask you, you know, how fast have these kind of scams evolved? What kind of tools are being used? And what do they look like today as opposed to, you know, the sort of outdated one I just mentioned? Well, uh, you know, for starters, like the 419 scam, the Nigerian Prince scam is actually much older than the heyday of the, you know, early 2000s when it it came to Nigeria and it, and it kind of took off. Yeah. But, you know, that scam goes back at least to the medieval era. Huh, really? Yeah, it's, it's called the Spanish Prince. That's the original version of it that uh, ethnographers trace back. So, you know, these things work and they get refined and adapted and they get translated, but they they have the character sort of of an urban legend. The stories mutate and, and get um, updated, but the underlying themes, the morality play they represent, the, the things that they appeal to, they all are static. I think that the things that prime us to be scammed today and the shape of the most prevalent scams today are on the one hand, the correct sense that a lot of stuff just is a scam. Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff that's out there in the world just is a scam, right? That, you know, you are often being pitched by people who want to invest your retirement fund in something that is so cluttered with, with hidden fees that even if they make good bets on your behalf, which there's no guarantee they will, you're going to come out behind relative to, you know, just sticking it in an index fund. Right. So the fact that something sounds like a scam doesn't mean that it's not legitimate. Mm -hmm. And then the other piece of this is that the institutions that are meant to keep us safe from scams employ kind of uh, layers of indirection in the form of cheap subcontractors who are almost indistinguishable in their functioning from scammers. So, you know, the after-hours fraud people employed by your bank don't know how to pronounce your bank's name. Right, yeah. Just like a scammer might not know how to pronounce your bank's name. And they have an officious, generic procedure that applies to the 50 small credit unions they service, which means that they ask you a lot of redundant questions. They ask you the same thing in multiple ways. They ask you things that they should know. And so if you've ever dealt with your bank's real anti-fraud, and then you are called by a scammer pretending to be the anti-fraud, a lot of the worst conduct that that scammer engages in on the phone that should be an alarm bell is actually indistinguishable from the conduct of your bank's own crummy, cheap overseas subcontractors who themselves are constrained by these three-ring binders full of rules so that even to the extent that the person who calls you from the Philippines or, or somewhere else is someone who cares about your welfare and who is intelligent and capable of solving problems, they're not allowed to. They just have to follow this script just like a scammer would. You, as I mentioned off the top, are one of 
very few people who I imagine we would like to think should be invulnerable to this type of scamming. Uh, why is that? How deep in this stuff are you? Well, I think that to the extent that I'm I'm uh, less vulnerable than other people, it's because I know that I am vulnerable, so I don't let my guard down usually. Right. Uh, I have worked on digital human rights for more than 20 years, and so that's things like access to encryption and privacy and free speech, mostly with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I'm also a best-selling science fiction writer who's written multiple novels in which information security is is the thing that the the techno thriller plots turn on right. and then most specifically I am about to publish book 2 of a trilogy about a forensic accountant who busts high-tech scams. The first one was called Red Team Blues, and it was about cryptocurrency scams. And the next one is The Bezel, and it's about both petty grifts, you know, people who cold call you, and and giant ones like real estate investment trusts and people who are um, given a license to take over uh, state prison systems and then use scammy technology to extort money from the families of people who are incarcerated. All of these are real, and, and you know, they are drawn from my decades of experience and fury with both the scams uh, that are pulled and the impunity for the scammers. All that is to say, when dealing with digital fraud or phishing or scams, this is like, this is a home game for you. Yeah. You know, you're swimming in these waters. And yet, yep. uh, just tell us what happened. Walk us through it. So sure, I, uh, I was uh, on Christmas vacation and we went to New Orleans and we needed some cash. So we went to a Chase ATM in the French Quarter and the ATM rejected the card. And uh, it wasn't clear whether that was because the ATM was malfunctioning or there's a problem with the bank, but we were on holiday. So I thought, I'll just try it at the next ATM before I call the bank. So we get to another ATM. This one's for credit union. And I bank with a one branch credit union. So using that Chase ATM would have been expensive. Most of the credit unions actually have reciprocity agreements. So I love using credit union ATMs. They're, they're free. And so I used this one and I got some money up. Everything was fine. And then a couple of days later, we're getting ready to leave. My family were back at the place we were staying, and I went out for a last walk. So I'm out on my own, and I get a phone call with my bank's phone number, and it's the uh, bank's fraud uh, department, and they want to tell me that my card has been abused. Someone just tried to buy an iPhone with it in New York, and do I want to freeze it? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I can even tell you how it happened. I used these two ATMs, one of which rejected the card, and the other one, while it accepted the card, was it really cheap and might possibly have had a skimmer? In fact, maybe the reason the one that rejected the card rejected it is that it had a skimmer too. So hard to say, but that's definitely what happened because it just happened, right? Here I am and you know, the one of the crime capitals of North America. Right. I just used a couple of ATMs that were suspicious. I rarely use this card, and now the card's been compromised. Sure. And I my my bank has called me. Of course, this is how it goes. So the guy starts taking information. He's taking all kinds of information, just like they did the last time my card was compromised. And it's going on and on and on. And I'm not even thinking about it because none of this is particularly invasive. You know, some of the questions that might be a little bit sus, like what's my date of birth or what's my email address? These are like matters of public record. You can go to Wikipedia and find out what town I live in. You can go to Wikipedia and find out my date of birth. And my email address has been public on the internet since I think 1997. So, None of those things are are state secrets. I don't think twice about, about giving him this information. But this is just going on and on and on. So at a certain point, I'm like, you know what? I got to go home and meet my family. We're going to go to the airport. Once I get through security, I'll call you back. And he's really frustrated. But I'm like, 
I'm sorry, this is not my problem. Like, I've given you everything you need to free this the card, and I'll call you back later. So I go home, we get our suitcases, get in a cab, go to the airport, and on the way, we find out that there's a Boeing Supermax that just lost its door plug. And every Boeing Supermax in the sky has been grounded. So we get to the airport, and it is chaos. Our flight is not a Boeing Supermax, but everyone who is booked on a Boeing Supermax is trying to get on our flight. Right. So instead of getting through security with a lot of time to spare and having a long time to call uh, and deal with the bank, we get there with minutes to spare. I call the bank anyway, and I call the number that I had um, stored in my phone for after hours uh, with my bank. And it turns out that's the lost and stolen card, not the card fraud number. And they tell me card fraud is something handled in the branch and I should just go in on Monday if I've already frozen the card. So great. It's all good. Right. Sure. All sorted. So Monday I go in, I have a printout of the bad transactions. I'm processing the paperwork. The uh, person I'm speaking to from the bank is visibly upset about this. And she's like, you know, we're a little credit union. Visa's going to go back to these merchants and try and decline these transactions retroactively. But if the merchant's disputed and Visa sides with the merchant, we have to eat this. Mm-hmm. And I say, you know what? Your outsourced fraud department, they're on the hook for this too. Because I told that guy to, to cancel my card. And all of this fraud happened on Sunday. I spoke to him on Saturday. And she goes, yeah, that's terrible. Let me go call our outsource fraud people and check their records. She comes back and she says, they never called you. That was the scammer. And I start furiously going back through that conversation. What did I give that guy that would have let him rip me off? And I realized what it was. He hadn't asked for the last four digits of my credit card number. He'd asked for the last seven. Hmm. And it varies from institution to institution, but with a credit union, the first nine are going to be the same on virtually every card they issue. Huh. Which means that if you give them the last seven, you've given them the whole card number. And that's when I figure out what's going on. Now, look at all the ways that the stars aligned for this scammer. He called me right after I used some scamming ATMs. He called me when I was in a hurry and couldn't stay on the line long enough to maybe, you know, pierce his patter. Right. He got me at a time where there was a, you know, sort of once in a decade problem with Boeing aircraft. Although with it, we're talking about Boeing, so maybe it's once a year problem with Boeing aircraft. <laughs> I just didn't have the time to call back or poke around or see if there's some other way to contact my bank. Along with the fact that my little credit union does have these outsource uh, firms and these outsource firms aren't great. And my phone number, unlike my email address, unlike my place of residence, unlike my date of birth, my phone number is actually pretty secret. I pay for data broker removal. I typically don't give it out. If you Google my number, my name doesn't come up. If you Google my name, my number doesn't come up. Even if you're paying for data brokerage services, usually you can't get my number. And this guy called my number knowing what credit union I banked with. Right. And those two facts really made this quite convincing, all other things being equal as well. I got to speak to my bank's risk manager, and one of the things she told me is that lots of credit unions are being hit with this attack, and somehow the attackers know the phone numbers, banks, and names of credit union customers, 
and it's somewhere in their common supply chain. So they all use a small number of, of larger banks for SWIFT uh, relaying services. A lot of them do business with Zelle, which is an instant payment and settlement service. Some of them are using these same outsource anti-fraud. Mm. So, you know, someone's leaking this other piece of information that acts as a pretty devastating convincer. Now, my guy actually called me back the following Friday, which was the Friday before the long weekend. Fridays before a long weekends are an amazing time to commit fraud because the bank's closed for like three days. You can go do a lot of fraud. Yeah. He calls me at 5.30 and says, my card has been compromised again. So I start probing the guy. I'm like, hey, you know what? I'll call you back on that after hours number. Which one should I use? And he's like, no, Mr. Dr. O, um, you can't call back. Now that you know that you've been scammed, if you don't go through the whole security protocol with me, if those scammers run up any additional charges, we're going to bill you for them because you stood in the way of the bank addressing this uh, security breach. Right. I hung up on him at one point. He called me back and I'm like, that's not a thing banks do. And so I just, you know, hung up and blocked his number or or went do not disturb rather because he was calling for my bank's number. I didn't want to block it. The news cycle these days can be relentless. Let us help you with that. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story, Canada's most interesting daily news podcast. Every day, we stop that news cycle in its tracks and examine one big story in depth. Something that matters to Canadians. You can find The Big Story every morning for free at Frequency Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Find your frequency. Explain, um, because I know you've written about this, how that can happen with the concept of uh, Swiss cheese security and how we might practice it in our own behaviors. Um, Not to make us immune from this, but to to reduce the chances of uh, all those right notes hitting. Yeah, so Swiss cheese security, it's a term from information security and and other forms of of security like um, aviation safety and so on, where you have a bunch of systems that overlap and one is supposed to correct for the defects in the in the other. So you've got your own BS detector, you've got the bank's security procedures, you've got the fact that certain information is secret and not readily available, and so the scammers can't use that as a convincer and so on. And every now and again, as these pieces of, of Swiss cheese with the little holes in them are moving around, sometimes they'll line up and there will be a hole that goes all the way through the stack. Mm. And because the attacks are continuous and they're probing you in every way at all times, when that hole opens up through the stack, something slips through it. Now, it's important to understand that the point of Swiss cheese security analysis is not to say that if we just make the stack one layer thicker, uh, we will solve the problem, right? We just need one more piece of Swiss cheese that will block the hole that would have otherwise gone all the way through because some of these pieces of Swiss cheese themselves open up extra vulnerabilities, Hmm. right? So the fact that my bank uses outsourced security that asks this routinized set of questions and so on made me more vulnerable, not less. And so adding another layer of Swiss cheese doesn't always make you more secure. It can leave you less secure. And I want to mention here that one of the things that I think we're apt to get a lot of in the coming years is new vulnerabilities opening up because of AI 
but not because AI is going to be the hacker's best friend that will find all the vulnerabilities and exploit them or overwhelm you with BS or whatever. It's because your bank and the other institutions you use are going to fire human beings who are competent and whom you have a better chance of detecting fraud if someone impersonates them because you know them to be competent with AI systems that are riddled with nonsense and defects. And that means that the bar that hackers or fraudsters have to hurdle in order to convince you that you are talking to your bank is going to get a lot lower Mm -hmm. because you are going to be more accustomed to dealing with incompetent, fumbling, repetitive, officious, unappealable processes that come out of the end of an AI. In other words, I don't think an AI is necessarily going to impersonate your bank. I think that the fraudster is going to impersonate your bank's AI. (laughs) Are scammers uh, gaining ground? Is security getting better? Um, Is it an eternal balance? I think that the scammers have the upper hand because so much of our economy is grounded in scams. I think that in a world in which your right to sue can be confiscated by a binding arbitration waiver buried in a 20,000-word piece of uh, fine print, Mm -hmm. and where, you know, you have a person who was uh, president of the United States who said that cheating on his taxes made him smart. You know, even the fact that um, online services maintain the fiction that because you continue to use them, you consent to being surveilled and having your data collected and shared and, and, and sold and weaponized against you. So I think that we really have groomed people to expect that large firms can act in ways that are absolutely indefensible. Just as that guy said when he called me up and said, if you don't continue talking to me, you will be on the hook for all the fraud that's committed. That's a pretty plausible thing to say. Mm. I mean, thankfully it's wrong, right? But it's a pretty plausible thing to say. So last question then. What does the average person do? What do they need to take away from this? And like, if all the world's a scam, um, is the only solution just to, you know, keep your radar up at all times in every encounter? That sounds like a pretty shitty way to live. It is a terrible way to live. And, you know, eternal vigilance is impossible right? Vigilance is not something you can maintain at all times. Your guard will always slip. So one of the things that you can do to avoid the need to be eternally vigilant is to just have rigid procedures rather than having to think through what you do every time. You could just have a thing that you do every time, which is like uh, I generally have, which I slipped on, which is if my bank calls me, I call them back. The problem is that I knew from experience that if I called the bank back, that I would have to sit on hold, and then I would be speaking to someone who didn't know what was going on, and I would have to go through some kind of long protocol, and, you know, I was pressed for time. Banks can fix this, right? Banks can uh, say to their staff, be they in-house or outsource, tell the person to call you back at the number on the card, give them a five-digit case ID that they can scribble down or remember, Mm -hmm. and we will not automatically put you onto another call the minute that person hangs up. We will give you 10 minutes before we pop another call through because that's that's why you can't just speak to the person who called you up when you call the bank back is the bank doesn't want to pay for them to be idle for 10 minutes. But, you know, while we're waiting for the banks to shift that value from themselves back to us, you can still have this process for yourself that is a no exceptions process where you just never, ever, ever, no matter how busy you are, ever speak to someone from your bank without calling them back. And then besides that, just don't assume that you are immune. Right. When you hear about someone who is scammed, we can go, oh, thank God I'm not as stupid as that person. 
So I don't have anything to worry about. And that's a very reassuring thought. It's something that often technically skilled people do where they shame people for for, um, having fallen prey. But you can also, on the other hand, say, thank God I heard about that scam so that I was given a reminder that no one is invulnerable so that I will know when I get that scam call, I will I will remind myself that I'm as vulnerable as anyone else and that that will be the armor that prevents me from falling prey to the same scam as this person. And it's a very different posture. And I think that if you can keep that humility in mind, which is also a form of, of uh, grace for the people in your in your life who fall scam to these things, then you will, on the one hand, just be a better person. You won't be a dick. And on the other hand, you will be a safer person. You will be in less risk of of falling prey. Corey, thank you so much uh, for walking us through what happened to you and uh, for this excellent advice. And I'm sorry that we live in this world, but uh, this helps. Yeah, thank you. I I appreciate it. Uh, And, you know, if if your listeners are are interested in how all of this turns into high-stakes drama— uh, they can pick up my book, The Bezel. It's a standalone part of the Marty Hench series that comes out on February the, the 20th. Available uh, wherever quality books are sold. And even where they sell some crummy ones. <laughs> Thanks again. Thank you. That was Corey Doctorow, internet expert, scamming victim. And that was The Big Story. For more, you can go to thebigstorypodcast.ca You can, of course, send us some feedback if it happened to you. Let us know, like I said, stories, how we learn best. You can find us at hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca and by calling 416-935-5935 and leaving us a message. This podcast is available in every single podcast player and on your smart speaker. Just ask it to play The Big Story Podcast. It's not a scam, I swear. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.